Here we go. Five, four, three, two, one. Hi, I'm Steve Sensenig. And I'm Rayburn Johnson. And you're listening to Beyond the Box. Beyond the Box is a community of people who are learning how to live beyond the limitations of institutional religion. We are searching out a message that is truly good news for everyone. Through discussions, interviews, group casts, and online interactions, we endeavor to foster a safe place to discuss our spiritual journey. We don't have all the answers, but we are not afraid of any question. So, grab a seat, pour yourself a drink, and join in the community that is Beyond the Box. Folks, welcome to Beyond the Box. It is so good to be back with you. And we are at the first ever Beyond the Box podcast gathering 2014. And we're so happy. We've got a room full of people from all over the country, um, all over Canada. We've got people on the live stream from all over the place. So we're super duper excited about this whole weekend. And what a, I couldn't think of a better way than to kick it off with our friend Derek Flood, who I've grown to love Derek both as a theologian and also as a personal friend. Um, great guy. He is he is in person who you read him in a book. <laughs> so to me, that's the best compliment you can get. But today, Derek has joined us. He's going to be pulling from his new book, which is forthcoming, that I get the privilege of printing. I actually had a proof on my desk before Derek even had it in his hand. So that was pretty cool. Um, so anyway, his new book is called Disarming Scripture. It will be coming out very soon. Derek, do we have a date on that yet? I'm, I'm hoping for an end-of-year release, so like in time for Christmas. And he just got an endorsement from Walter Brueggemann. And any of you guys in the theological nerd world knows that Walter Brueggemann is the Old Testament scholar. I mean, he is the man. So, um, And we are just so happy to be joined. I'm going to give up the floor for 20 or 30 minutes. Derek's going to do a presentation, and then we're just going to get out of the way. And we're going to do a roundtable discussion with Derek in the midst. So, Derek, fire away, brother. Great. Hey, well, I'm really happy to be part of um, this whole gathering thing. I wish I could be with you guys personally, but um, I've also been a fan of Beyond the Box forever. And um, I sort of religiously listen to all the podcasts and everything, and I just love the way it creates a community of people who can, um, you know, ask questions in a grace-focused, safe um, place. And so what I want to talk about today, um, Ray mentioned my, my forthcoming book where I'm dealing with uh, the problem of violence in scripture. And so the premise of my talk is that we are at the place where we are asking questions about scripture, where we are wrestling with the violent parts of scripture. And then from that comes the question, okay, well then what, what is the basis for authority then? If we're questioning the Bible, then where where is biblical authority? What happens to that at all? What does it mean? And you certainly need to rethink that. It's not, I mean, you could say it as a, just a pejorative, like, aha, but, but I mean, I ask myself that question, and I think we all need to ask ourselves the question, because we <laughs> definitely need to have a different way of approaching it than we would from the 
um, you know, God said it, that settles it approach that we might have had before from our fundamentalist past, um, which at, at least, and in, in, in I think for many of us, if it's not directly affecting us, it kind of at least indirectly affects us. It's kind of sort of like seeping into evangelicalism, even if it's not full on from our background. So that's the premise of the question. And, and so, um, so where I would begin is to say that, um, is to recognize where the questions are coming from. So there's an assumption that the questions, when we're asking questions of the Bible, that it's because we're backslidden, because we aren't Christians anymore. I just recently read an article where a person was saying, um, well, if you're asking questions, why don't you stop being a Christian? And why don't you just be an atheist? And, and they were totally serious. And it was kind of a little bit like a play off of the Peter Rollins thing where he wants everyone to become an atheist for a month. But... But I was like, wait a minute, that's, no, my, my problem is not that I'm moving towards atheism. I'm, my problem was more that the closer I got to Jesus, the more that I spent time with Jesus and began to see things from his perspective, that I began to have his heart for the lost, that I began to care about the things that he cared about, that made me all the more be disturbed by violence in scripture, not less. And so I would... um you know, before, you know, I'd watch an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie and he'd just like plow everybody down with an M16 and I'd be like, yay, cool action movie. And the more I got close to Jesus, I would say, wait, aren't those people Jesus died for? That's, that's not funny or cool. And I would be more and more disturbed by that kind of thing. So it was actually as a result of the deepening of my faith that I began to have these questions. And the, the, um, premise of my book or the, or the story behind my book is that I began to struggle with this because, um, then I have a conflict. I have Jesus and what I know of Jesus in my life and what has been, and what I, how I'm being shaped by the Holy Spirit as I grow to have the mind of Christ, grow to be closer to Jesus, had me then come in conflict with some of the stuff I read in the Bible. And so I had this, I almost like I have to, do I choose Jesus or the Bible? And that was like a real dilemma for me because that was like supposed to be the same thing. And, or at least they're supposed to be in line with each other. But as I started reading the Bible, what I discovered, I mean, not like I hadn't read it before, but as I started reading the Bible with, with that question in mind, what I discovered is that that questioning was actually in the Bible, all through the Bible. So in the Old Testament, you see the psalmists and their questioning and saying, hey, this is unjust and this is wrong and God, where are you and why do you, why don't you do these things? Why are they unfair? And you have, of course, Job is like, you know, the, premier example of this. And, and the prophets, too, are, are challenging the religious institutions of their time and challenging the people in their, in their piety and, and saying that, you know, this is totally wrong the way you're doing it. And then, of course, Jesus. Jesus is questioning people so much that they, they want to kill him. They want to throw him off cliffs, and, you know, he's obviously eventually crucified. And, and he's questioning the religious leaders of his time. And so I discovered that I was in really good company um, with that. And the difference, I would say, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, a big difference, is while both are questioning, the New Testament offers a specific um, alternative way of approaching what holiness looks like, what righteousness looks like. Whereas in the Old Testament, like, for example, in the Psalms, you have them saying, this is wrong. I'm being unjustly punished. I'm being accused of being bad, but um, and therefore having punishment. But I'm actually innocent. But then their their solution is therefore, and that's why you should kill that guy because he's wicked and I'm righteous. 
So don't kill me, kill him. So they're not questioning the system of an eye for an eye. They're not questioning the system of retributive justice. They're just saying, I happen to be innocent because I'm totally perfect. And this guy over here, he's the bad guy. Get him. Whereas Jesus and the New Testament are coming in and saying, well, hell, hold on. What if we didn't do this eye for an eye thing? But what if we did something way cooler? What if we did love your enemies? And what if that was the way we brought about the kingdom of God? What if that was the way through grace, through loving people that you think are unlovable? What if that's the way that we um, have holiness come about and not by I'm righteous and I have a sword? And so we have a major um, paradigm shift. And you can actually see the New Testament in that sense as, as a, a step forward. Or you could see it as even a protest against religious violence. That is in the Old Testament. I should mention that the Old Testament has multiple narratives in it. So it's not just the narrative of violence, but it's, it's several narratives. And one of them is the narrative of violence. And there's also the narrative of, you know, a movement away from that with, you know, Isaiah and peace and welcoming in Gentiles and that kind of stuff. So you have both of those. And so here's the thing though with the New Testament is that my background is to tend to think that the New Testament is the final word. This is it. We're done. And the problem is that that sounds really good, but what about this? But there's problems with things like, let's say, slavery. Um, slavery in the New, in the New Testament, is, we I, we would today pretty much universally agree that slavery as an institution is completely immoral and utterly incompatible with Christianity, and Yet in the New Testament, if you read just on the page reading in the New Testament, it's, it does not say that all masters need to absolutely let all their slaves go right away or you don't get to come back into the church building. You know, which is what if, if we would not say, oh, you are the head of a human trafficking ring. Oh, sure, you can teach Sunday school. I mean, we, we would rightfully have a, a big fat problem with that today. But they are like, you know, oh, Paul's like, well, in this one particular case with Philemon, maybe you should let him go and you think about it. You know, and doesn't say like flat across the board, no, you cannot be an elder if you're doing this, forget it. It doesn't say that. And it doesn't say, hey, slaves, let me help you to escape, which is what we would do today through, with human trafficking. Um, no, they say slaves submit to your masters as is fitting in the Lord. So we have in, so it read, read in a, it read in the way of this book is supposed to be the final word on this. That's a real problem for us. And that's just one example. There's, there's, there's several other examples I could cite where we clearly today, to the point where we make laws against it, have um, values that we think are just really obvious. And in the New Testament, it, it, it doesn't clearly state that. And so you need to have a different way of reading it, which would be to say that at the time they are moving... Um, in a direction away from that, and they're taking a huge, huge step forward, but it's not the last step to take. Um, with slavery as an example, you'd say that they're taking a huge step forward in affirming the um, person, in, in addressing slaves as beloved in Christ, as, as fully human, and as saying to masters, hey, you have, a, you have a master in heaven, buddy, so you be nice to them. You know, that is, in the context of the culture, a huge step forward. But um, but from our perspective, it sounds like, wait, you just affirmed slavery. What? And so depending on the perspective you read it from, um, it can look completely different. And this is where we get into what um, William Webb has um, outlined as a trajectory reading of Scripture. And so I wanted to um, draw you a little picture. 
Um, of course, when this goes on to the podcast, nobody will be able to see this picture. Maybe we can put a picture, this picture up later, Ray. We'll have to see. But anyway, so I'm going to draw you a little picture to illustrate um, how the trajectory reading works. So um, let's see if this works. I'm going to try to draw backwards here. But So we got the Bible, and we're reading the Bible. So here's the Bible. That is a King James edition, correct? Oh yeah, so here. Okay. King James version. This is the version that, of course, the version that Paul wrote. So, because he spoke King James English, as we all know. And from the perspective of the time, we're reading this, and we're like, "Yay! It's it's redemptive. It's it's pushing us in the direction of having more compassion for um, those we, we we would normally devalue, such as slaves." But read from the perspective of our time, rather than being redemptive, it's, it appears to be regressive because we are, we're reading it and we're seeing that it's saying things that seem to us to be sexist or seem to us to be promoting slavery from our perspective, which is, which, you know, 2,000 years later, we have to the extent that we have been following Jesus, and we have a little bit, you know, it's not totally perfect, but there's stuff in our society that's gotten more humane because of, I think, because of Jesus and how he's influenced the world. So it's not it's not exactly the same. It, living in the first century and living now isn't the same if you are a minority, if you're a woman. There, it's a big difference. And so, therefore, what we need to read instead is we need to learn how to recognize the direction that the scriptures are headed in, the trajectory. Can you hold that a little bit closer to the camera, Derek? It's uh, getting blurred on our screen. Oh, it. sorry. That's okay. So Hey, now we can see it. Here's the happy guy, because he knows how to read the trajectory and see where it's headed in. So <laughs> hopefully that's helpful. <laughs> um, so I love it. So that's, that's the idea of a trajectory reading, that we recognize the, the direction that they're headed and we say, hey, if we continue in that direction, then perhaps instead of just saying, oh, here's a buck for a homeless guy, we could say, hey, you know what? We have airplanes and we have trucks and we have engineers and we have doctors and we can start World Vision and, that would, and not say, hold on, doesn't say anything about airplanes and doctors in the New Testament, so we can just give them a dollar and that's all we can do for the poor. But to recognize, hey, Jesus cares for the poor, so therefore this huge international institution, which, is, which would have blown St. Paul away if we told him about helicopters and stuff like that, um, is in line with continuing what Jesus had originally um, brought forth as the value of caring for the poor, that, that, that abolishing slavery is in line with the direction that they were going at the New Testament, and we need to continue to, continue to walk in that same direction. So, the, now that is, now of course the problem with that is, how do we know exactly what that trajectory is. How do we know each step of the trajectory, whether we're walking forward in the trajectory or whether we're off course in our trajectory, whether we're going totally the wrong way? How do we know that? And so that's that's where we get into the sticky part. And the perspective of um, the, 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 the biblicist, fundamentalist perspective is that that's not safe. Safe is you stay with what Scripture says, you don't go beyond Scripture, and because it's unsafe. I want to read to you a quote. This is from the um, 
the 19th century. This is a guy named uh, John Henry Hopkins. It's from um, the book by uh, Mark Knoll, The Civil War is a Theological um, Conflict. I forget the exact, sorry, <laughs> the title of this book. You guys know what I mean, right? Good, the Civil War book. Gotcha. Um, so here's the quote from him. If it were a matter to be determined by personal sympathies, tastes, or feelings, I should be as ready as any man to condemn the institution of slavery, for all prejudices of education, habit, and social position stand entirely opposed to it. But as a Christian, I am compelled to submit my weak and erring intellect to the authority of the Almighty, for then, and only then, can I be safe in my conclusions." Now, I want you to contemplate what he's saying. He's basically saying, everything I know, everything I know from society, from, from uh, my common sense, from my intelligence, from my conscience, tells me this is wrong. But I need to be safe, so I'm going to trust in the Word of God. And we know, and if you don't know, then go watch the movie 12 Years a Slave, and you will get the idea that slavery is not safe. Slavery is profoundly harmful. Um, I'm, I'm getting an echo, Ray. Sorry. Is there a way to... Thanks. <laughs> it, it totally throws me off to hear my own voice. I'm like, ah. so, so we know that it's not safe. We know that it's actually profoundly, deeply harmful. Like, I mean, really, if you haven't seen the movie, to really get that, it really helps to see a movie like that where you get it to be personal and you see the impact it has on people's lives. We know theoretically that's wrong, but, but that movie really brings out just the emotional, gut-wrenching trauma that happens through slavery. Wow. Awful, awful thing. And so there's that perspective and how it's, we think it's safe, and boy, is it not safe. And now I want to read to you another quote. This is from 2005. This is a guy, Christian author, writing a book to parents about parenting. Um, it's from, the book is called Shepherding a Child's Heart. Notice how this book sounds very similar to the John Henry Hopkins quote I just read. Here we go. I would have never spanked them had I not been persuaded by the word of God that God called me to this task. It is not my personality. Margie and I were exposed to some teaching from the book of Proverbs that convinced us that spanking had a place, a valid place in parenting. We became persuaded that failure to spank would be unfaithfulness to their souls. Unquote. Now, what I want, what I want to really emphasize here is not the question of is spanking bad or not bad and what do we mean by spanking? Do we mean like with an open hand or we mean with a paddle and on and on and on and on. Here's what I want to point out is that he's saying, I had a problem with my conscience doing this. I felt bad about this, but I did it anyway. And what I want to point out is the danger that comes when, as, as a parent, we've all had this experience where we feel that what we did is wrong. We feel that, like, we went too far, you know? Um, and, and, and there's stories I've read of, like, you know, um, Billy Graham's mom she explain, talks about how she looks on with tears in her eyes as she sees her husband beat Billy with, with his belt viciously. And... And, sa and says in that context, but I knew it was right because I knew this was like, you know, God's way. She's crying. Her, her, her tears are trying to tell her something. And, and, and so it's really a question of, not a question of, of exactly where the line is. It's more of a question of what happens when we cut off our conscience? What happens when we, we feel that this is wrong and we don't listen to that? We don't listen to our heart. We don't listen to our intellect. This guy says specifically in his book, 
Do not listen to your pediatrician's advice. Listen to God's word that I'm going to tell you what God's word is in my book here. And, and so that's the problem is, is about going against your conscience and against your understanding. And, and, and then sometimes that leads to slavery. Sometimes that leads to um, what could potentially be child abuse. If we look back on history, um, you know, Martin Luther talks about how his mom beat him and she didn't just give him a little swat in the butt. She, she smacked his legs with a stick until he bled profusely, right? And Martin Luther talks about how he, quote, hated her for that, unquote. And so that's what we're talking about. We're talking about not listening to your conscience, not listening to common sense, and doing things that you feel are wrong because you think God wants you to. That is what I want to propose is not safe. And so the, come to the question of, okay, good. So let's say we want to start being, you know, trying to find this trajectory reading, trying to move forward in stuff, um, how do we identify where Jesus is going? So our first instinct is to find the right reading of the Bible. And I think all of us have, have done that. I've done that. Where we say, oh, well, I always thought that it meant this and that, and then I read this interpretation, and I realized that actually Paul... I thought he was being like really mean and saying that God wants you to be a jerk, but now I realize that St. Paul is actually saying that, that God wants you to be compassionate, and I love this reading of this, and it so helped me and everything. And the thing is, it's like, well, isn't it kind of a coincidence that the reading that you think is the right reading is the reading that lines up with what you think that, it wished you, that you wish that it said, which is, I wish it was compassionate. And so what you're really affirming is compassion, and then you find the guy or the girl um, who says, well, this is what Paul meant. And, you know, it's really, I don't know, it's, 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 it seems like it's not really about how do we decide whether, which authority do we take? Because it's not like we read this, the one commentary on the Bible and the one commentary agrees that this is what it means. Rather, there's this Bible commentary and nobody says, okay, we're done with, we've written one book on Romans and we're finished, right? They write another book and another book and this guy disagrees with the other person and back and forth and back and forth. And so everybody thinks they have the reading on what St. Paul really meant. And, and so, but we can't agree on what that meaning is. So, so that's, that's the definite problem with that. And, 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 and I say that with a little bit of a grain of salt because I write that kind of stuff. I write books on, here's what I think the right meaning is, but I don't think it can be based on you know, the scholarly opinion. And because then the question is, well, which scholar, which authority are you going to take? So we look to maybe then, then people are like, oh, how about the historical Jesus? But then it comes to the exact same problem. Which reconstruction of the historical Jesus is the authoritative one? And so, and, and again, we're back to this authority argument. So then people go and they say, well, how about having a Jesus-shaped lens? How about we, you know, read, read what Jesus would have read? But then it's like, well, okay, that sounds really good. And at first I was really excited about this until I realized that there's other people um, who shall be unnamed who will then say, well, actually, I think that what Jesus advocates is wrath and violence. And, and I'm, I'm, I was shocked to find out that there's people who would say with a serious, not angry voice, but there's also plenty to say with an angry voice, but would say with a, with a calm English accent how Jesus loves wrath and violence and, and be totally serious about that and really believe that. So that doesn't work. So, so what does work? And so what I, I want to propose is that what we need to do is get under the, get under the hood of the car and recognize what is driving Jesus's interpretations. What, how does he go about? What is his hermeneutical method? And a big point that I want to point out about this is 
Jesus is not into labels. So when we say we want to read it Jesus-shaped, I think Jesus would be like, what? Um, I don't think actually that's really my emphasis. Remember the thing I said about the centurion and how that centurion, who you regarded as this enemy scum guy, was doing the stuff way better than, 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 than people from my church, um, you know, Israel. And, and then, you know, the story of the Good Samaritan is a story about how the bad guy is actually the good guy. The person that we despised is the person who's actually the one who's the neighbor. And the people who we thought were the good guys aren't. And so Jesus is over and over and over going saying, no, don't make this label of, um, of, of Israel versus Gentiles. Don't make this label of, you know, um, you know, my in-group versus your group. He says, um, you know, who are my brother and my sister and my mother? Those who do the will of my father, right? Not my tribe. And, and so he's always about what's the content of what's happening? Who's loving? That's what he's judging by. And I think that when we go too much into the, um, you know, the Jesus view, that it sounds good, but we're playing into that exact same um, labeling stuff that Jesus was trying to get us to stop doing. So we need to look more of what's the content of what Jesus is doing and not just simply that it has the Jesus TM label on it. Otherwise, we're going to have him say to us, you know, you said to me, Lord, Lord, but that wasn't about me at all. And so we need to actually try to, to recognize that. Um, so what I would propose is that we need to look at the merit of something. We need to look at whether this is good or whether this is harmful. And when we look at just even a teaching of Jesus, like say, um, a, a turn the other cheek. When we look at turn the other cheek, you can interpret this passage, and people have, to say, oh, well, if you were being abused in a situation of domestic abuse, you should return and continue to be abused for the rest of your life. And look at the results of that and say, wow, this is that results in harm. And, and, and let's say that we can agree that it does. Then we need to say, okay, well then that, the, so then in other words, the, 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 the yardstick for our interpretation is not to ask what is the right interpretation, but to ask what is the good interpretation, meaning what leads to goodness. And if we recognize that this interpretation is leading us into harm, then it's not right. In the, in those categories that I think Jesus would talk about. And if we, on the other hand, recognize, we interpret it to say that it's about having people who are oppressed, um, assert their value in the face of their oppressor and then bring about that oppressor to, um, be, um, confronted in their injustice, which is kind of the, the Martin Luther King Gandhi interpretation of it. We can look at that and evaluate that and say, hey, that actually seems to end oppression and be really effective and so that is a good thing but of course then there's always the the nitty-gritty like how do you live that out where it gets complicated and that's where we keep on asking that question on like a micro level kind of this course correction of of looking for that that's that's what i would propose i propose that we look at merit and not simply at labels for things and 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 work our way through that now of course you can immediately ask well, how will we know if we do that that we won't make mistakes? And to that, I would say, we will make mistakes. Um, we are we are human, and we will get it wrong. We have got it wrong, and we're going to keep on getting it wrong. Just like with parenting, if you're a parent, you know you get it wrong, and then you try the best you can to course correct and to get it right next time. So, 
we need to do that together. We need to do that in a community of people. Um, again, to come back to the parenting example, someone who's been married for 30 years, I would say generally, knows more about marriage than someone who's been married for 30 days. And so if we have as a community been practicing the way of Jesus, we, then there ought to be a, a, a wisdom that grows up out of that that we can look to, that we can learn from, learn from each other. And so I think it's something that we need to do communally, but, um, and it's something that we need to, it's, it's really about being empowered to be a grown-up, um, to have a, an, a, a responsible grown-up faith that involves thinking. We won't have perfect answers for everything. We won't get everything right, but we need to engage our conscience and our mind as we come to scripture, as opposed to shutting off our conscience and our mind. And so if I could grab a line from C.S. Lewis um, to conclude with, I would say that we need to read the Bible in a way that is not safe, but that is good. Mm-hmm. Oh, Selah. Wow, that Selah. was awesome. Great Holy job, mackerel. Derek, I'm, I'm going to turn the you in the room down just a bit, just so you don't get a huge feedback loop, hopefully, and, and, and hear. Okay, you. I'm going to try to also pull out my headphones. Okay. Awesome. See if that works. You if guys not, still hear Let me okay, know everybody? the problem, and I'll put it back in. Okay. Awesome. Uh, Derek, thank you so much. It's so funny. I, I'm going to open it up for a conversation here in just a moment, but I have to say it's just so funny. I know, of course, you and I have been talking, and I've been reading the new book, and, and Steve and I were talking in the last week. And it's funny because Steve's not read any, any of that. And uh, we literally were having the, the same, same conversation, conversation saying awesome. the yeah. same things that we've got to get to this point of moving beyond this, uh, this thing about having the right interpretation to what is the trajectory. And Steve's favorite question on beyond the box is what does that bias? And uh, at the end of the day, I think that's what you're asking. What does this lead us to? What does it bias? Um, we're going to open it up here. Let's go ahead and we've got the house mic slide. Um, guys, we're going to just, like I say, if you, just the ground rules, if you have a comment, a question, you want to talk, just raise your hand. We'll call on you. James, hit it, brother. Um, I think that something that's been confused in our society today is the difference between justice with God and justice is how we see it in our society. And people think of justice with God as... Um, uh, you know, give them, you know, uh, or with man, actually give them, make them pay for it, give them what they deserve. But justice with God is actually seen differently, correct? I, I would say that. Excuse me? And I, yes, I would, I would say that God's justice, as Paul understands it, is a restorative justice where God doesn't come in wrath, which you, I guess you could say would be wrath, would, would be, could be considered just from a human perspective, but rather, God comes in Christ to redeem the world and has, a, a, in other words, rather than having punishment, God wants to solve the problem and make it better. And that would be how Paul defines um, God's justice, the Diocasino Theos, as um, the justice of God being a restorative justice, a justice that makes things right, which I think we should change our view. I think that it would be better, rather than putting people into prisons, so that they then get out and aren't any better and go back on the streets and commit more crimes, that we would find a way to actually have prisoners get better and reform and change so they can then come out and be constructive parts of our society. 
So do you think that's a big part of the problem uh, with uh, the way we see the Bible is our view of justice? I'm sorry, can you... Re go ahead and repeat the question, James. So do you think that's a big part of the problem in interpreting the Bible is our view of justice? Well, to the extent that we have um, embraced the value of restorative justice, which I think um, to a large extent in the United States, we definitely have... Um, embrace that value of restorative justice. I mean, I'm sorry, of retributive justice, right. of payback justice. It has to do really with how much we identify with the person who's being judged. If it's us, we don't want retributive justice. If it's someone we love, we don't want retributive justice. If we um, dehumanize them and think of them as an enemy or a terrorist or whatever, then that's when we want to have retribution because we don't value them. And I think the New Testament is all about recognizing the value of those who we would normally not value. Uh, Derek, we've got a question from someone online, so we're going to shoot that to you. Um, yeah. Um, unmute you, Steve. Go ahead. James Cross is online. And first of all, for those of us here in the room, there's about six people who have joined us online. Uh, James Cross and Kelly and Rob Grayson and uh, Tony Corsero. Uh, and Phil Martin, a couple others I might have missed, and they're all saying hi to you guys too. So, uh, anyway, let me get to James's question first, Derek. He said, Do we trust people? This kind of, I think, goes along with what you were just saying, but I'll throw it to you anyway. Do we trust people and welcome them in love, or do we need laws to structure their lives to avoid sin? Both. <laughs> it, both end? Well, I don't, I don't think I'd want to say, like, let's, let's just open up all the jails and let's have no police and, so um, I, I think that laws are can be helpful. Um, I'm not I'm not against laws. Okay, okay. And then uh, Rob Grayson posed this question as well. He said, "Some reinterpret the law of love, which is how he's interpreting what you're uh, proposing here. The law of love by saying that God's apparent violent actions in the Old Testament were loving in a way that is not obvious to us. To me, Rob speaking, this is just an appeal to mystery, whose only purpose is to defend a narratism." How do you address this? I agree. I think that the most important thing that we need to ask is how this affects us. If, because there's a lot of times in the Old Testament where it talks about human beings killing other human beings in the name of God. And throughout Christian history, human beings have killed other human beings in the name of, in the name of God a lot. And also how we human beings harm other human beings in the name of God, um, thinking that we're doing the right thing, you know? And so that's the thing that we need to really focus on is what we do. A secondary question is who God is, but, you know, it's, it, it is defi definitely my place to judge myself and my actions. And understanding who God is is also important, but I think it's really critical that we recognize that's a secondary question and not the first question that we should be asking ourselves. We should really primarily be asking ourselves about religious violence and calling are harming other people good and holy, that's where we need to really look at. That's why I think it's so important to, um, to that we have this critical look at the Bible because it affects how we live. Okay. Uh, anybody here in this room want to ask a question? Yeah, Justin. Question. Um, I have a comment and then a question. I, I wanted to thank you for your what you kind of unpacked just now because I had a huge aha moment. Um, I was talking about the issue of divorce um, just a little while ago and uh, I had a, a dear friend that went through a divorce, and so that issue was um, kind of really close to my heart. 
And I, I came across quotes of church fathers that said the exact same thing that the John Hopkins quote said in regards to slavery about divorce. And it said, you know, yes, this woman's being abused by her husband and, she, and she's being beaten. Um, and, and like, I can't with any logic say that she should stay with him, but the word of God says it. So I'm going to side with the word of God. Wow. And, there, and there's like quotes that they're the same kind of almost, almost verbatim, but about divorce. And so connecting that really helps me embrace what you're saying. It makes a lot of sense. Um, I have a question. Um, it might seem a little rudimentary, but it's kind of for my own. I'm kind of undergoing a big paradigm shift. My, my mom, she's very conservative, my dear mother. And I've had, been having some conversations with her, and she's like, you need to listen to R.C. Sproul. Um, <laughs> and so I, I've been listening to some, some R.C. Sproul about apologetics in the Bible, um, which is kind of my roots. I grew up um, very fundamentalist, very, uh, a lot of Reformed influence. Um, one of the things that he's very adamant about, and a lot of them are, is this idea of if we abandon the authority, or if we abandon the inerrancy of Scripture, then we basically make all of the claims of Scripture illegitimate. Like, we can't trust that Jesus is who he said he was if the Bible isn't inerrant. inerrant. And so I have come to understand that as a false dichotomy, and I, and I intuitively kind of understand that, but how would you articulate that to someone who is convinced that that, that dichotomy is, um, is real? To a certain extent, since we are past the 18th century, I think that ship has sailed, because unless you want to say, oh, how many slaves do you have then? Um, we, we can't really truly hold that position, because we have moved away from that on-the-page reading of Scripture. We don't have slaves. We don't whip children with literal whips anymore, and if you do, then you go to jail. So if you want to have a literalist reading of the Bible, you must be in prison. Uh, just it's just really that simple. So that's that's kind of the problem is that we it's it's naive. It's 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 kidding ourselves if we think that we are reading the Bible exactly on the page as 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 it says in the text. We aren't. We just aren't. And a second thing that I would really point out with the whole problem with inerrancy is it ignores the the idea that we are sinners, that we are fallible. Because I read the Bible, the the, the dilemma is not between um, my erring morality and an infallible Bible, the dilemma is between my fallible human morality and my fallible human reading of the Bible. I'm always going to read, every, everything I'm going to perceive is going to be through my lens, and my lens is not perfect. And so, even if there isn't any problems with the, with the Bible itself, at all, there's a problem with me and my ability to mess it up as I read it and to misunderstand things. And so, oh, and one thing I'm saying too is that the reading of the Bible as a straight text and not doing a trajectory reading is is missing the point of of the Bible. I think it is. Um, so, so that's I don't think there is such. I think that I think that infallibility is is a myth. I don't think there is such a thing because we are fallible. Derek. Um one thing that one thing that struck me as you're presenting this is that uh, one of the I, I know one of the things that because so many of us have come up in fundamentalism conservatism one of the things that's going to be the immediate pushback 
is like people will throw out that scripture, you know, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can trust it? And that there comes this level of we've got to relearn to trust our hearts, to trust that we can hear the spirit of God and that the spirit of God, that, that the spirit of God really becomes our canon versus scripture. Those intuitions that we have that, that, like you said, we, we resensitize our conscience to where we can, uh, we believe that we're actually hearing God to a point that we can move beyond the words on a page and get into that trajectory. How have you come in, because I know you've come from a fundamentalist background, a conservative background like so many of us. How did you learn to retrust your heart? What were some steps that you took to re-tenderize your conscience instead of just running over it roughshod with, quote-unquote, the Word of God? What helps me is recognizing that there are two narratives in the the Old Testament. We and and one of those is the narrative that that you were expressing with that scripture, the narrative of unquestioning obedience, the don't ask any questions, just do what it is or else narrative. And that is in the Old Testament, it's there. And then there's another narrative which is the narrative of faithful questioning, which we also see all through the Old Testament as well where people are questioning stuff, that's, that's, that's what the prophets do. They are questioning stuff. That's their thing. They're questioning stuff in the name of compassion. And so, and, and, and this is something I thought was really fascinating, is, is Paul's response to that narrative of unquestioning obedience. He quotes Isaiah, and Isaiah says, um, you know, who are you to question the counsel of God? Are you God's counselor? And Paul does not say, yes, exactly, are you God's counselor? You better just do it. What Paul says is, ah, but we have the mind of Christ. That's his answer back. He, he rebukes Isaiah the prophet and says, well, Isaiah, who, who knows how? I do. That's who. And so does anyone who's in Christ because we're supposed to have the mind of Christ. That's why we can speak with wisdom about the deep things of God because we have the mind of Christ. So I think that that is the New Testament perspective that, that we do know these things, you know. Um, right before that, he has a parallel thing in that same chapter where he, the, the passage is, who has known what God has prepared for those who love him? What eye has conceived, what, what mind has conceived, what eye has seen? And Paul says, well, God's revealed it to us by his spirit. That's his answer to that. His answer is, I have. And, and so it, that's incredible. But I think that, that we need to recognize that we can understand, you know, that's the whole thing of the New Covenant is all about that, isn't it? It's all about God being in our heart and everyone from the littlest to the biggest to be able to say, I get it. I know what God wants. And not in a, and that can't be in an arrogant way of, I know and you don't. But it needs to be in a way of that we trust that the Holy Spirit is active in us and that it is not sinful, awful, dirty us against the perfect book, but it's rather that through the Spirit we read that book and then we can encounter the living God in that and that they need to work together, ideally, not as in conflict with each other. Yeah. Boy, I'll tell you, that that really resonates with me, Derek, and I I think so much of what you're talking about um, resonates with the whole Beyond the Box mission and what we've been talking about on the podcast for years. Uh, I want to throw you another question from the chat room here. Uh, Phil Martin, joining us from Tampa, Florida, says, the New Testament starts out really well, he puts well in quotes, on the love things, and then due to interpretation seems to devolve back to an angry God in Revelation. What do we do with Revelation? Uh, I know some of that is the order in which we put the books in the 
the canon, uh, but Revelation actually was a later writing. What what would you say to that in terms of Revelation being interpreted as an angered God to conclude all of the love stuff? Yeah, Revelation is really hard to not read wrong. Um, that's it's it's that's it's really problematic. I mean, it says something to me about Revelation that it's so easy to misread it. it makes me kind of like say it needs to have like a little warning label on it, you know, like handle with care. Um, and, and and to be fair, you also get that in smaller doses, um, and other places in the New Testament as well. It's not just Revelation. In Matthew, you have a lot of that. In um, some of the letters of Paul, which some people would maybe dispute as being from Paul, actually, and maybe other people wrote them, you get kind of like nasty bits of um, retribution. Um, you could read. I don't. I don't think you should read it this way. But you could read Paul's statement in Romans of leaving God room for God's wrath, where he's counseling people to follow in the way of um, enemy love um, and saying, that's why you like, let God kill him, you know, but you don't. And and that's one way to read that. And I do think that's actually kind of what Matthew is saying. It's certainly what Miroslav Volf is saying, um, is he's proposing nonviolence and enemy love for us and trusting God to take care of the wrath. And I, what I would say is that to a certain extent, if you begin with that with that view of this is what justice looks like, justice must look like punishment, then and if that's the way that you pedagogically can get to you loving people is by ha- making that move of saying, hey, let God take care of it, let, trust God to that, then I think that that is, well, I mean, it certainly would be better. I'm certainly on the side of Miroslav Volf of um, let's let's not have violent retaliation um, after violent retaliation, I certainly think that's that we're on the same page of what we're trying to do um, with with moving towards peace. But um, it does d- definitely create a problem of, wait, so you're saying that we love better than God, that the way that we do stuff isn't the way that God does stuff? I think that becomes a problem, and I think what it reveals is that they're starting off in their world, and they're saying stuff like, you know, hey, um, you know, masters, you also are under a master with Christ. That's kind of a, they're beginning from a human place. And I think that's sort of an imperfect analogy of to think of us as God's slaves is maybe not the best way, place to begin. Maybe if that's where I'm beginning, then I guess i got to begin where I begin from. But I don't know if that's a universal right place to begin. And so I think it's important for us with a trajectory reading to see if we can move towards a more Jesus-shaped understanding of who God is. Um, so, And I don't think the New Testament gets that far. Just like with slavery doesn't get that far, I think it even less gets that far with their understanding of God. Their, their main concern is human behavior, which I think should be the main concern. And they say to that, we have unconditional grace and forgiveness and enemy love as our way. We will not participate in violence but they don't get so far as to completely, clearly redefine who God is. And I, th- I think that's our task. Mm-hmm. That's good. The trajectory the trajectory idea is really important. Uh, let me toss it back to the live room here. Uh, I thought I saw another hand earlier. Yeah, Michael. Yeah. Okay, so my question, I've noticed that in the academia, there's some considerable debate about, you know, how did the nation of Israel begin? Where did the original priestly cult come from? And my question is, uh, how do you believe that God's revelation played into uh, the origin of the nation of Israel? And, you know, if they did sort of construct these things from the ground up, their sacrificial system, etc., um, how did divine inspiration sort of play into that? Do you mean if they did? 
Are you assuming that they did um, have the sacrificial system? I don't think that I don't think it does. I mean, I'm, maybe I'm misunderstanding the question, but I think it's pretty clear from looking at surrounding cultures that the sacrificial systems were all over the place, and that Israel was not. And I think even from the Bible, it's clear that that other cultures um, also used the method of sacrifice. That that wasn't unique to um, Israel. So, am I misunderstanding your question? I guess I'm wondering, like. How involved do you believe that God was in instituting uh, the nation of Israel? Maybe as involved as he is in our lives, um, as, as involved as he is in instituting um, you know, our government when we try to do a Christian nation, which is, you could argue... Not very wow. much. <laughs> um, don't be messing us up now, Derek. <laughs> I, I don't think that you could say that America is a completely, utterly perfect Christian nation. I think that would be an understatement to say that. There's a lot of problems with us. There's a lot of stuff about our nation, um, not just in Hollywood, but also in Washington, that are very unchristian, even if we claim that it is Christian. And so... I don't, I don't believe that there's some kind of this, I think, I like to think that we are closer to God now with Jesus than we were before, and I don't have this direct contact with God where God's like, let me dictate to you all the stuff I think about stuff. But it's, it's a struggle, um, for us right now in Christ, even though we have the mind of, all that stuff that Paul talks about, we have the mind of Christ, and it still isn't super obvious. So I think that actually what's crazy is the, the more that the Bible um, in, in the past, they would speak in this language of, the Lord said this, period, you know, and, and it reminds me of when I was in Germany one time, I was hearing a person translate from um, the English pastor into German, and I was understanding both of what they were saying, and it was really kind of hilarious from the different cultures how they would say stuff, and so the American would say, the Lord told me that this and this, and they would translate that, in, and then the translation in German was, um, in my spirit, I had the impression that um, I should do this and this. Because that's what Germans would say. Germans would never say, God said X, Y, Z. They would say, I felt the impression that I should. And, and, so they kept, and so the person was making this sermon, and they kept on translating it into German, quote-unquote, but it was translating into German culture, and it sounded super different. And so they um, will say stuff like, you know, God says X, Y, Z, and then another, another prophet will say the exact opposite. You know, we have um, um, in uh, Samuel says, God's going to kill your son, David, because you sinned. And then later on we have, I think it's Elijah, who says, never will I do that. That is horrible. I will not punish a son for the sins of their father. I don't do that. I don't roll that way. And, and so we have, thus saith the Lord against thus saith the Lord. And I think it's really more that we have human beings back then trying as much as they could in the context of their own culture to, um, to be with God. But they're going from, for example, they're going from a culture that believed in multiple gods. They go from that to believing in Still multiple gods, but Yahweh is the best one. So we're going to follow Yahweh. And then go from that to saying, actually, the other gods are just a bunch of fake idols and they're nothings and there is only one god. So there's this progression you see of them moving out of that, right? And, and we have the same thing too with their morality changing gradually 
but it's a, it's a human morality. So I think that God is involved, but I don't think that means that everything we see in the Bible is straight out 100% direct from heaven, sent down with the facts from God. I think it's seen through their culture, just like the New Testament is with their, their move to slavery. It's, it's in that culture and trying to move it forward. I, I hope that helps with the, the question. Yeah, Derek, I think that's the, that's the whole thing. When you're talking about the trajectory, is um, we have, because we all have been taught at some level inerrancy and this, this sticking to the written page, you know, you pour concrete over something that happened hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and it really leaves us stagnant to where we, we do either end up with contradictions or we end up completely discounting the Bible altogether. And uh, it seems like the liberal tendency has been to completely discount the Bible altogether. The conservative tendency has been to end up with this version of God that looks like a monster, that he loves you in one breath and he hates you in the next. And uh, so I, I think what you're offering here is just, to me, it's a balance that liberalism and conservatism, neither one have found in recognizing the trajectory. Let me, let me throw something that I thought was really helpful about, uh, about that approach, which is we can read the the Bible, and um, I'll, 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 if I can do it this way, looking back this way, this will be me looking back to the past, right? And looking this way will be lo me looking to the future. So we can read the Bible looking back to the past, and we can look at it and we can go, wow, from, from the values that I have now, which I think are good values, I see slavery affirmed, I see um, um, patriarchy affirmed, and I, whether, and, and either you read it as I'm Richard Dawkins, the atheist, and I say this is terrible, or you read it as the funda fundamentalist and you say, well, I think this terrible stuff is great. I'm all for terrible. I'm for oppression and all that kind of stuff. I want to keep that. And so the dilemma that we have is from that perspective, our dilemma is really kind of that, am I a fundamentalist or am I an atheist? It's the only choices I have. But if we instead look to the, look, look forward, and say, how can the Bible help me to be more moral, to be more compassionate, to move in the direction of grace? How can that text help me to do that and, and do bigger things? Like I mentioned with World Vision is a bigger thing than just here's a buck for the poor guy. Um, it's a bigger thing. How can we go bigger? And Jesus did say, you will do greater things than these. You know, so I think that's the goal. So how, how can I, how can I read the Bible and have it help me move forward rather than having it tether me to something that I think is morally wrong? Let me, uh, let me bring this in. Uh, Rob Grayson joining us from the other side of the pond. Uh, he said, my, my problem is not with my own understanding of this stuff on that. I'm right where Derek is. Uh, so you at least have one fan here, Derek, today. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. The, the problem, Rob says, and, and I agree with him here, is how to reach out to those who are knee-deep in inerrancy and bibliolatry. Uh, like, could you give us, I think what Rob's asking, he mentioned this earlier in the chat, could you give us maybe a couple baby steps to uh, to try to help us in getting someone else to see a view outside of the traditional inerrancy view that would allow us to read Scripture in the way that you're proposing? Well, so the premise of my book, um, my, in fact, I'll quote the subtitle of my book, um, which is, it's, it's Disarming Scripture, 
cherry-picking liberals, violence-loving conservatives, and why we all need to learn to read the Bible like Jesus did. <laughs> and which and I'm, you, I'm hoping people will find. Let, let me just say, you almost exhausted the lightning source subtitle uh, amount that we could allow. <laughs> so there's that. Well, I think McLaren is, is beats me on the longest subtitle ever. <laughs> super long subtitles. And so I, I kind of enjoy these like outrageously long subtitles. I think they're funny. But the, what I think that the answer would be is, and, and as, as an evangelical, I, I still identify with the evangelical approach of actually reading the Bible as opposed to the liberal approach of like, eh, you know, whatever, close enough. And where they don't actually read it, you know, and, and so I think we need to have a way to actually read the whole Bible thoroughly and still come up with this view as opposed to kind of like looking at it with squinty eyes and kind of doing that. And so that what I would, what I try to do in the book and what I won't be able to do like in, you know, a three second answer here or even a 20 minute answer here is I try to show how Jesus read the Bible and give lots of examples of that and then show how Paul read the Bible and then demonstrate that, hey, Maybe we should read the Bible like Jesus and Paul. And so I think that's the answer. It's not just that I say, from my perspective, this is a good way to read. And I think that is important, actually, but that, that we believe in the integrity of what we're doing. But I think that really helps to see that um, Jesus and Paul are reading the Bible in that way, and they aren't reading it in a fundamentalist way. They aren't reading like we thought that they would, where they just sort of say, they affirm everything that, you know, that, you know, Jesus quoted it once, so we affirm the entire book. I think that's totally bogus. And it's, it just, if you really take a deeper look, you'll see that it isn't what Jesus is doing. Jesus is not reading the Bible that way. Jesus is questioning stuff. And so I think that's, that's the, that's the hard to answer in a bumper sticker, but the real answer to the question is demonstrate that this is, modeled by Jesus and Paul, what we're trying to do, I think that's really how you'd answer that question in a deep way for someone who's skeptical. That's what helped me personally as an evangelical to be able to embrace what I'm doing is to see that I, I wasn't just me. And Derek, I want to be respectful of your time. We're going to pull on you as long as you're willing to be pulled on, but I know you might you might have to go. So you just let us know when you need to go. Yeah, I'd say um, maybe... Oh, sorry about that. Five minutes and I probably need to cut out. Say Say that again, I'm sorry. I'd say maybe, um, actually, I, could, I think I have another maybe five more minutes, Perfect. and then I, I, get a, I get a deadline. Uh, Perfect. Okay. Anybody else here in the room want to comment or question? Uh, even if it's a dissenting opinion, we don't all have to agree on this. So if you have concerns or, or questions. Uh, yeah, Tom Van Gill. Okay, I'll just, that's just we're <coughs> wrapping up here. I'll just throw this out sort of as a uh, complimentary view, I guess. We're, we're talking about Christianity and probably, I guess, mainline North American evangelicalism, right? Um, it seems to me that the needed thing, the, the needed component, I'm going back to your uh, your piece, uh, Derek, about where you had talked about you know spanking a child and doing it anyway, even though you knew it was harmful or that you knew you had feelings contrary to what you were carrying out. Um, it seems to me that what we're talking about is an awakening. You know, I'm, I'm getting all Eckhart Tolle here, but like we're talking about awareness in the moment, the, the paying attention of to what's happening in that moment. I, I think we can, in uh, North American Christianity, we can tend to squash our feelings and um, 
perhaps even more so in the Protestant Church. I find it less so in the Catholic Church that we have uh, there's a much more emotive concept in the Catholic view, which would have you be contemplative, which would have you in that paying attention moment. It seems to me that that's what's missing. If I do, do I track well with you there? That sounds right on to me. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Thanks. Shortest answer yet. <laughs> Derek, uh, I just want to thank you for your time, brother. Yeah. Uh, hugely, hugely helpful. Did you guys appreciate that? Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Derek. We're going to let you go now so that you can get to do what you need to go do. And uh, love you, brother. Appreciate it. Appreciate it so much. Have fun teaching Thanks, those people. So All right, later. All right, take care. Wowzer, guys. Did y'all enjoy that? That was awesome. Yeah, outstanding. Wow. Yeah. We're getting wow. clapping on the chat room. They're all talking. <laughs> <laughs> Hand signals. Let me make sure we got okay. Good. We're going to go ahead and flip back. So, uh, yeah, we've got we've got a few more minutes. If you guys want to talk about this in the room, let's let's keep the conversation going here. Do you have some? Uh, some thoughts, some... I think what Tom said is really good about living in the moment. You know, we're, we always try to go back to Scripture and say we need to do this, this, and this without living in the moment and realizing how that applies to us right here, right now with the people that we're involved with in our lives. You know, are we used really, you know, checking out our conscience? You know, are we just going to this written word and saying this is the way it is? Yeah. So, I think that, that is in the Catholic contemplative tradition, but actually beyond that, another word for that trajectory reading is what Catholics call development of doctrine, which has been the idea that sola scriptura is when we start saying the Bible is the final word. Right. You know, it, the Catholic Church is going to call this a unique authoritative word and something you're not going to contradict, but something that is going to continue to expand as the Holy Spirit teaches you. So there, and I think it's a resource to pull back from for all the good that's developed in the Protestant tradition. I think at this point we need to look at the Catholic tradition and say, hey, how about this idea of the development of doctrine? Yeah. You know, and, and this even says there are things that are clear in the, you know, and, and by the way, just so you know, the Catholic Church doesn't think the Pope is authoritative in everything he says. As a matter of fact, the Catholic Church thinks the authoritative thing is when the entire Church agrees together. And there is only a move. Well, yeah, and that's why you know they're starting the whole thing with the, uh, the, the they're having this conclave about the family, because the Catholic Church is moving toward you don't see it up front, but theologically they're moving toward how to understand gay marriage and how to understand you know the the different kind of relationships that happen in this very complex world where people don't live until they're forty, they live a lot longer, and marriages break down, and and but the idea is. We're going to keep talking about this and praying about it. And you know, the church is probably going to really have some small differences five years from now and some big differences 20 years, and maybe we'll get it 100 years from now. But they have this attitude that doctrine develops, and that's the same thing. It's, it's not, you know, God couldn't be finished because he just started a process in the first century. We started a process basically with Abraham, because the whole story before that is all myths. You know, but it turns them all on their heads, all the Near Eastern myths, and then says history starts here when God speaks to a person. Mm -hmm. Rob Grayson uh, posted this in the chat room. I'll throw this out. He says, my thought 
we need to be careful not to become as fundamental in our rejection of inerrancy and our adherence to a nonviolent theology as we see others being in their inerrancy. And I, I think that is a, a struggle sometimes when we... Um, and, and Gordon, I think in some ways this plays to the whole Catholic-Protestant thing too because I think the... Um, the whole mindset of Protestantism is to reject certain things, and so we become very adamant in our rejection of things Catholic, um, now things fundamental, th whatever. And uh, protest, yeah, protest. rebellion. Exactly. Like Protestantism really. comes from the word yeah. protest. So yeah. yeah. Uh, so I, I think Rob brings up a great point here that we uh, we need to constantly be checking ourselves not to become a new type of fundamentalism in our non-fundamentalism, and not to become a new type of Protestant in our protestation against Protestantism. By the way, Vatican II, a large part of Vatican II was to, to say, we repent from protesting against the protesters. Mm -hmm. You know, and the Catholic Church said in this point, we look back and think, you know, we've started to mirror this whole thing we thought was a mistake, and we participated in the same mistake. So, you know, we're sorry, and let's go forward. So, so yeah, I mean, but that's a Gerardian thing. That mirroring is what happens. Mm -hmm. You know, when I come and start with a snarling face, you know, at you, you snarl back and you don't even know it. Right. You know, you think you're defending the truth, but you're just mm -hmm. mirroring the same uh, conflict. Mm -hmm. So, dream. Uh, I kind of want to piggyback on what, what Tom was saying about the awakening to self. I got it written down in circles around it because when we try to read scripture in a different way, I think that's a big deal, I mean, because you're kind of taught to ignore yourself. I mean, right. just take it, what it says, and do it. And that's what we're talking about, you know, you feel badly. Oh, no, I have to spank my daughter with a spoon. You know, that's where I was in one church. They said, don't use your hand, use a spoon. Mm -hmm. And I tried it a couple times, and I'm like, I'm really not comfortable with this. Yeah. Fortunately, I was strong enough to say, I'm not going to do this anymore. So, I mean, being aware of yourself and being in the moment and all that kind of stuff, I think, really is important in those baby steps. When you're talking to somebody else, it's like, you know, you can't just be totally ruled by these words. They have to be applied. They have to be interpreted. And I think a, a really big part of that is knowing who you are and learning to trust yourself and your heart and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. like, it's a big deal. Yeah, go ahead, Tom. Um, what just, I can probably say a million things about a million different things that was said because there's a lot of topics. But what jumps out to me, what I kept writing down, is um, when does, and this is hard to express, but when does I am become we are? Um, because he's, he talks about we, we need to look and view and read and interpret the Bible with the mind of Christ. What is the mind of Christ in the church? Um, that's that's where I'm at. Um, and that, that's where I, I love what Gordon talks about, the tradition of the Catholic Church. In, in Protestantism, because of Sola Scripture, because of Calvinism, because of the way we got mis... In my interpretation is we had real issue with authority and the authority that was on the Catholic Church. Um, 
and we, we broke away. But we no longer had that tradition because now we didn't trust it, maybe because of Christendom and what was involved with um, a few hundred years of doctrinal development. Um, so then we left the Pope or that hierarchy, authority structure, and in a sense left we are, and, and, and went to the Bible as, I am, spoke in the Bible, and he stopped 2,000 years ago. And I don't think he stopped. No. I think if I could throw a thought in there, though, I think the question for me comes down to where that authority was initially supposed to be anyway. And I think one of the questions that we keep coming up against, uh, not up against, I don't mean it that way, but the questions that, that keep rising to the surface of these discussions is, which authority do we go back to? Um, if we assume that, that authority did exist in the Catholic Church, then the answer for us might be to go back to the Catholic Church. But what if the authority was actually prior to that, and what if there is a longer trajectory of misplaced authority? And I don't ask this in an adversarial way at all. Uh, I mean, Gordon, you know I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm your friend. But I, I think, like, I, I always wonder how far back do we go, because a lot of times people will say, well, we at least agree on this creed, right? I go, well, maybe not. Maybe it's before that. And what was the authority that, that determined that creed? So, Actually, uh, look at the book of Acts on this, because uh, in Acts 15, there's a council about the Gentiles. Now, Peter, by the way, is supposed to be you know, the Pope. Um, in Acts, you know, and earlier, I guess around Acts 11, he has this dream, you know, what God has made clean. Well, it doesn't become authoritative law with Peter. The, the church gets together. And they pray about it and talk this over. You know, even though Peter has this role, the early church in the first few centuries, you know, he has a role of being a referee. But the authority was never in one guy or even a hierarchy. It is, it is really in the church as a whole. And, and, you know, the body of Christ itself. Now, there's a special role, you know, for, these, for the apostles. They still have a role. I, and I would say one thing that I, I really loved about, because you know, the, the contemplative part is there, listening to God now is there, but I'm also forced to go in dialogue with the first century, the second century, the seventh, the fourteenth. It's a dialogue across time and space. Must be with Christians in every culture. It must be with Christians in every time. And it, 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 that I think will put us in the position of seeing what God is saying now and where where our next step is which will never be the final step. Can I push back a little bit on that, though, yeah. uh, for the sake of discussion? You say it must. we must dialogue with this. Well, the, why, the, why, why do we... Like, because don't we, in a sense, even pick and choose from 7th century, 1st century, 3rd century, who we yeah. want to read and what we want to read well, and how we interpret it, like I, we do with the Bible? We must, no, maybe a softer sense of must. It's a good thing. It is a good thing for me to dialogue with my brothers. It's a good thing for me to listen to people who have a very different experience than we do. And it's a good thing for me to listen to the second century as well. It's second century especially, that's what we miss, because these people interpreted the Bible at the foot of the apostles themselves. You want to get some real good insight? It's not all there. It's a lot they don't understand. But part of, to me, ultimate reconciliation, you know, I, I see across time and space, these being my brothers and sisters. They all have unique gifts. 
They're not all going to speak to me. There's going to be a certain time, for example, the Catholic Church did a big resourcement to the first four or five centuries, where the Orthodox Church had already been paying attention to that probably too much. But Catholic Church made the opposite error. They got away from the Bible and away from the first four centuries in reaction to the Protestants. They said, well, look, doctrine is developed to this point, so we're going to start where doctrine is developed to. So they start from the 15th century, and, and, and they're not looking enough at the past. But no, when I say must, it's just, just saying it's a, it's a wonderful idea, and the good things come from it, and that these are all our brothers, and there's no one whose life and word and witness is insignificant. Unfortunately, we can't hear everyone. Right. I, I think it, I'm sorry, I was just going to say, I think a lot of it does come back to that trajectory and realizing that when you talk about the 2nd century or the 7th or the 14th, that we need to respect that trajectory, but simultaneously recognize that those people are, you know, at times maybe they're further down the trajectory, at times maybe they're further up. Like and we can reconciliation. Exactly. We yeah. can pull gifts from all of those different places, but I think the temptation for all of us and it, it's the same temptation we have with Beyond the Box. The temptation is to pour concrete on where you're at and let that become God's revelation, period. And then it's the final word for you. It's the final word for everybody else. And what ends up happening is instead of, you know, it reminds me of the children of Israel wandering in the desert and they would have the pillar of fire, you know, by night and the cloud by day. And it's like whenever the cloud or the pillar of fire would move, they were supposed to move with it. Sometimes I think, especially um, especially in Christianity, I guess I can't speak for other religions, but we have this tendency to not follow the cloud, to not follow the pillar of fire, to camp and get comfortable in a certain spot because this is where God spoke to us and think that, A, that's the only place he can now ever speak to us or the only way he can never speak to us, and B, this must be how he's going to speak to everybody else. And to me, that's a... Um, that's a danger that we all have, whether it's the Catholic tradition, the Eastern Orthodox tradition, the Protestant tradition, or all of us people that are outside the institution. It's, you know, it's a challenge for all of us, I think. Someone else have a contribution? Michael. Um, I'm sort of a, partly of the opinion that um, revelation increases with um, sort of the expansion of awareness and of consciousness. And, you know, in human life, that best occurs when you are listening to the people that you disagree with, when you, uh, like a Christian who decides to read from different Christian traditions as well as from um, the Buddhist tradition or the Hindu tradition, and the more, um, you know, information or uh, voices that you, you hear and the more languages that you hear from around the world and throughout history, the more that your awareness expands. And you're like, oh, I've never thought about it like that before. And your awareness expands and everything gets bigger, you know, and I think that's maybe pr primarily one of the ways in which revelation develops over time. Yeah, yeah. just to piggyback off that, what's interesting is when, I mean, looking at the big pictures, we live in an unprecedented time where we have more access to information than we ever had. So there's this sort of exponential, if you, if you see it as a, an awakening or the trajectory view, there's sort of this we're in this point where there's sort of this exponential spread of these ideas where like before it was just like you had some books and that was all you had. And so being able to compare the ideas 
um, and, and see what all of the different people believe. Never been in a period. Of what you're saying there, Justin, I think it's I think it's interesting in light of what we're talking about with the Protestant Reformation that that the internet really is the Gutenberg press of this generation. So that just like with the Gutenberg press, all this that really fueled the Reformation, the Enlightenment, all of that, um, because for the first time people had access to this information unmediated. In the same way, it is like that on steroids now, to where you know we're talking about Gerard like. You know, uh, Gordon searching and finding us, uh, you know, by our interviews on Gerard or, you know, uh, Lisa finding us by searching for Robin Perry. You know what I mean? It's like all there's so many resources now that there's no excuse to have one person be your sole authority, to have one person be the sole professional in your life. Because now it's gotten to where many times even going to the doctor you can self-diagnose better on WebMD sometimes than your local physician can do. You know, it's it's a time in which we live, I think. Well, and I think, uh, it's interesting, I'm trying to keep up with the chat room here too, and they're having their own discussion about all this as we're talking. I try to bring the two together. They can hear you, but you obviously can't read them. Um, but the discussion in the chat room is is around this question about, you know, why do we feel like we have to locate authority in something other than the Spirit? And, and Rob Grayson said, because we can't, see and feel the spirit so like there's this he's not saying that's a good excuse i don't think but just that that's our tendency um you know i've mentioned before how israel wanted a king because they wanted a a tangible physical leader that they could follow and see uh instead of of following the spirit and i I think one of the challenges for us um is uh as several people mentioned in the chat room that a lot of times this desire to place authority is really wrapped into the desire to control and so we, I think we have to continually try to break away from the notion of us controlling others and therefore trying to place authority in something that we trust and respect so that they, we can point them to that as opposed to living it out. I keep coming back to First John in my mind and my thinking of where he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you can know and have fellowship with and experience, I'm paraphrasing of course, the very same Jesus that I've known and had fellowship with and experienced. And so... I think, and, and maybe this is why I kind of push back on the whole, we've got a dialogue with this century and that century, not because I don't care what those people had to say, but because we, I think that we have to be careful to make sure that we are in relationship with Jesus and not in relationship with someone who else, who, someone else who says they're in relationship with Jesus. A lot of times I think we, we misplace that relationship without even meaning to or thinking about it or intending to. Uh, you gonna put me on camera? <laughs> <laughs> um, they know what I look like. <laughs> I live stream. Um, we and, and we've done this with the Bible. I think this is what Derek is addressing this this problem that we've taken the Bible and said, "Oh, hey, here's something tangible that we can point to and say, thus saith the Lord.'" And so that be, we end up with a relationship with the book, even if we deny that vehemently, because we've we've misplaced our direction. So somehow I think we have to continue to to ask ourselves. And I'm telling you to ask yourself, no, I'm just kidding. Are we really in relationship with Jesus or are we constantly putting something in mediation between us? That's, I think Tom's comment about the contemplative tradition, mm-hmm. which is accessible to all of us, is, is kind of central to that. And, and by the way, too, I think you're right. It, it's so easy to think if, if something's old. You go to two extremes. One, the, the, the idea that what, what's new is right. The other is that something from the 17th century is uniquely authoritative. Right, right. It's not. Right, right. It's a balance. They're just like us. Yeah. 
James. I really think that the whole paradigm shift occurs when uh, with the with our view of ourselves. You know, our, you like you brought that up in the very beginning, right? We're about you know the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know? And and we're sinners, you know, and so we can't make judgments for ourselves. We're unable to do that. So that's why we have to have this book in order to go to, to know what we should do and what we shouldn't do. The truth is, we're all made in the image of God. God is in each one of us. You know, we come from God, or, you know, and we all we can all make those decisions based upon our, the spirit within us, God in us, however you want to say it, our conscience. And so I think that's really where the paradigm shift, you know, comes into play. Once we see ourselves as capable of... Um, interpreting scripture with our own conscience, with the Spirit of God within us, we no longer have to have this authoritative book that we go to. I really believe that's where it's all changed for me. But James, that's the hard part is that is such a gigantic paradigm shift. Um, we were having a conversation last night, a couple of people at the house, and um, one of them was talking because she's very much on this road, you know, kind of at the start of this journey down this of deconstruction and um, she was expressing and I totally felt her heart she was expressing how that gum scary this is because when you've been told that you cannot trust yourself that's what you've been told all the time you, a you cannot now you now I'm getting self-conscious so you've been told that you cannot trust yourself a and B you've been you've been told that there's this other thing that you can trust then when there's there's an erosion that happens and a construction that happens simultaneously, the erosion of the authority being based in this thing and the construction of your own self-esteem and your own heart going on simultaneously, you've been taught to fear this and to put faith in this. And now we're telling you, you might need to really question this at times. That's what Derek's really getting at. And you might actually need to put more faith in this in your own heart than you've ever been taught possible. That is a freaking scary paradigm. It freaked me out. I told Steve over and over, we would have these conversations, and I would go, Steve, I honestly, I can remember being in Bible college and feeling like I was falling away from the faith. I thought I was leaving Jesus to even think these thoughts. Oh my God, I'm I'm on the hot train to hell. You know? But that was back when you believed in hell. That was back when I believed in hell. But you know, the uh it, it's such a Sometimes, and this is what concerns me sometimes with what I see in the living room. Um, like, for instance, I put up, I, I remember, I don't know if you guys recall the video I put up about control. And this lady is being, she's at, from the pulpit at this mega church talking about, you know, you need to listen to your pastor and God never put it in your heart to question your pastor. And who do you think you are to question your pastor? And I'll tell you what kind of concerned me just to be real, just open with you guys is in that thread I saw people going, oh my God, how could anybody ever think like that? Oh, who, I would leave that church immediately. Any, all those people that stayed there were so stupid. And I thought, you're indicting me. Yeah. I was there. Many of us were there. We sometimes forget because to us it feels like, you know, for us it's been like a 10-year journey. We sometimes, and we're still on the journey. We've not arrived on this thing. But we sometimes forget that it took us this long to get to these to this place where we can even begin to trust our heart. I still don't trust my heart most of the time. And where I can even begin to think that, you know, maybe 1 Samuel 15 is just wrong. 
You know, maybe God wasn't into killing the Amalekites after all. Maybe he didn't want to kill every man, woman, and child. And maybe Samuel just was talking out his butt, right? That's a freaking hard thing to say. But I think uh, we've got to be patient with each other in this process and realize it is a process and you don't arrive overnight. And so there's many of us, even in this room, we, we're on totally different journeys. We're together and yet we're different places on the path. We can never judge where another person is out on that path. Because we've either been there or we're going to be there, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let me uh, throw this thought out for you. Uh, we get on the Sorry last down there. Let me throw this thought out for you that Rob Grayson said because I think this this really goes well with what we're talking about. He said, "I think there's a sense in which the fact of something being written down elevates it to a higher level of authority in our minds. Like we automatically assume it's more authoritative if it's written down." Uh, he says, he goes on to say, on the one hand, we need the writ, uh, we need the written word, sorry, the, the scroll. On the one hand, we need the written word for purposes of distribution and shared understanding. But on the other hand, it tends to tie us into being unhealthily wedded to the text. And I, I think, I think that's a good way to sum it up, really, because I, I think what, what ends up happening is we say, again, well, I can point to it here. And, the point that it was written in the first century or second century seems to give it even more authority for us because we go, well, this was this is what they wrote back then, so this must have been really close to the truth. And yet, just in the same way that maybe Samuel was missing something, perhaps, could the writers of the Gospels, could Paul have been incorrect in some of their understanding? Um, that's how I understand trajectory, as Derek was using it. I don't know if that's exactly how he would describe it, but to me... It's understanding or, or at least giving allowance for the idea that when Paul said something, even if he said it with an authoritative way, um, that he still might have been incorrect in his understanding about that. Well, let me, let me actually just throw in something, too. Uh, I'll, here I'll refer to the Pope because, again, it's where, as a Protestant, I completely misunderstood this. Um, the Pope is connect, would be connected with Paul in this in that he's seen as a as having authority in matters of faith and morals, not anything else. He has an opinion about science. It's his opinion. I might respect him, but I'm just saying kind of similar here, and that's and I'm just saying this is the way Catholics would look at the Bible. In terms of setting us on that trajectory of faith, it's authoritative. In terms of the view of society, you know, like slavery, no, not at all. It never has been seen that way. Though there are, are iner- inerrantists fundamentalists in the Catholic Church trying to push that way too, always. You know, it's just human nature. But I'm just saying that that's but that that kind of paradigm's been there. That it's, that's what I actually hear Derek saying is that and this is kind of where he goes in the book, is he's saying that conservatives and liberals have the same exact argument to prove and disprove the Bible and it comes down to authorship. The way that a conservative tries to prove that, for instance, 1 Timothy should be authoritative is by proving that it was written by Paul. Mm-hmm. The way that a liberal tries to disprove that 1 Timothy is authoritative is by proving that it wasn't written by Paul and therefore doesn't carry authority. Yeah. He's saying, you're missing the point. Yeah. The point is whether or not it fits in with the trajectory, the trajectory that Jesus right. started us on. Yeah. And so when you read Paul in 1 Timothy 3 talk about women, you know, I would say... Paul, I, I just don't go with you there. It took a long time for me to, to feel at all confident in being able to say that. When, when Paul gets to 1 Corinthians and he talks about head coverings, you know, 
I, I don't know any conservative literalist that I grew up with that grabbed onto that and said that it was authoritative, right? They would contextualize that, but yet they would literalize 1 Timothy 3 about women. Right. And to me, there's a, a, a bait and switch. Speaking of women, uh, James Cross says here, can I throw a curveball here? Would all of this be different? If women had guided this whole 2,000-year oh, experiment of church. <laughs> so let's hear from What do you guys women? think? Yeah, we, I would like to hear and, from women. And, and I'll that. throw this follow-up out real quickly. He says, do men have a particular way of looking for truth instead of experiencing relationship? Go ahead, Cindy. Well, this is really isn't in response totally to that. This has more been about our discussion in Derek. But a lot of people recommend really great stuff on Beyond the Box to read. And someone recommended um, George MacDonald Unspoken Sermon Series. So I downloaded that from Kindle Free, and, and I had already um, written down these quotes, so I just wanted to read the quotes that, that he said, because it really surprised me. I think this was back in the 18th century. Um, he says, Sad indeed would the whole matter be if the Bible had told us everything God meant us to believe. But herein is the Bible itself greatly wrong. It nowhere lays claim to be regarded as the word, the way, the truth. The Bible leads us to Jesus, the inexhaustible, the ever-unfolding revelation of God. It is Christ in whom are <coughs> hid all treasures of wisdom and knowledge, but not the Bible. So I thought that was just so cool, because I was talking, in my mind, you know, and I don't know if that's what he meant by that, but to me, that's the way I interpreted that. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then he also says, the true revelation rouses the desire to know more by the truth of its incompleteness. Mm. Oh. And so he just there was just Ooh. so many profound things that starts like, wow, it just resonated with me. I'm still thinking on it. I'm still pondering it. Could you say that one more time? Yeah. Things I know I loved this one. Say that again. I was say mistakenly typing in the chat room um, and I missed it. <laughs> it says the true revelation rouses the desire to know more by the truth of its incompleteness. I mean, wow. Say <laughs> I'm telling you that that'll preach. And I ain't even a preacher anymore. That'll preach right there. And I was like, wow. wow. Well, uh, and there's there's some more too that I wrote down, but I thought that was those are just some great teachings. That completely undermines the fundamentalist exactly. version of what totally. we believe about the Bible. Yeah. That and the I Bible. believe a guy in the 18th century yeah. was saying this stuff. You know. It's and Cindy, if you don't mind, when we're on the lunch break, uh, the chat room asked if you could post those quotes in the living room so that they could oh, see yeah, them. Oh, so, yeah, sure. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, so the Bible then becomes this thing that is to be an impetus in our relationship with God, but not to be the rest the resting place, right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. It means it's unstoppable. Yeah. I'd love to hear some from some ladies on James' question before we wrap up on what <laughs> what would it have, go ahead. Uh, yeah, uh, would it have been different if women had engineered, I forget the word he used, or, or managed this 2,000-year church experiment as opposed to men being the authority structure? And, and in what ways might it have been different? Um, which, yeah, I'll just throw it out there. I don't need to I comment. Think on that one, but that's, a, that's a loaded question. Yeah, that's a loaded question. <laughs> that is loaded. Well, actually, 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 there are other, other writings on the Bible from women who were never posted. In the, so that they were involved, but the men were the ones that were in control. Well, they had a much bigger role in the mystical tradition, too, from Julian yes. of Norwich mm -hmm. to yeah. Teresa of Avila. And maybe perhaps more significant than the mundane, hierarchical guys who were just, you know, handling the organization. The heart of the church may have always belonged to the women. 
Well, and the first witnesses to the gospel, to the resurrection, were women. Yeah. Which I, I find amazing that we have subverted that for so long. Yeah, like, I never understood. It's right there in the Bible that we claim as authority, and yet I never saw that until it was pointed out to me. It was like, wow, he intentionally went to women and revealed himself and said, go tell Peter and John. Go tell the other disciples. Even before that, he, he revealed himself first to the woman at the well, the Samaritan right. woman at the well. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. You know, one thing I noticed last night, this was just, I was telling Steve, I was just trying to be observant last night, you know, being the first time that we were here in body, getting all together. And there was one one moment where we were in conversation for about an hour, and I was looking at the ratio of women to men, and there was four men and three women. And I noticed that three women didn't talk for an hour. And us four guys were going at it, right? And I started realizing... It, it, that's a, what that's James said. Is it? I was going to say, in our defense, well, that's, Doreen was falling asleep. Was falling, <laughs> but but I, what I want to say in Which that might is, say something about what we were saying, too. <laughs> I recognize as an outspoken male that sometimes the reason women aren't guiding the thing is because I'm usurping that. And one thing, this, this weekend, one thing I want to be real intentional about is I want to hear from the ladies. I'm realizing on Beyond the Box, the guests that we've had, the first guest we ever had was Sharon Baker. She's the last female guest we've ever had. That has bothered me for years, to be honest. And I keep trying to figure out. You, you tried to get Rachel Held Evans. I did try. I was try. in contact with Rachel Held Evans. Yeah, and Phyllis Tickle. Oh, yeah. I had, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, Phyllis, Phyllis, thank you. Yeah, I like Phyllis Tickle. Makes me feel a little better. <laughs> that makes me feel a little better. About, but I guess what I want to Don't say tell is, Phyllis that he didn't remember. <laughs> I'm realizing two things in our, in our living room and on the podcast is that there, um, we have a tendency to only listen to white men, right? And women and ethnicities, they've always, in the, in the institutional church, they've always been pushed to the side, right? So that, like Gordon said, it took the mystical tradition to actually give some of them a voice. Um, in the same way, I'm recognizing that we can be very guilty of the exact same thing. And I would love this weekend to maybe be the start of this equal balance of hearing from the feminine as well as the masculine. Yeah. You know what? Was it Derek Flood that put on a post about asking, saying he had a lot of dudes oh, yeah. writing on yeah. his bookshelf? Was that Derek? Yeah, it was Derek. And he actually asked for suggestions of women theologians or writers or you know women interested in in spiritual things and. I just really appreciated that. I mean, he'd like to have more dudettes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is how he worded it on his bookshelf. And that's just really cool. I mean, to try to go back and say, what would it be like if women, you know, I, I really don't think you can even do that yeah. because yeah. of the culture was yeah. a patriarchal society. Mm-hmm. So, right. yeah. you know, it just, it's, it's one of those hypothetical things. Yeah. It's really hard. It is. It's an interesting thought experiment. I, I will throw this out too because Kelly in the chat room said he appeared to women at the resurrection because the women were there doing the caring part of preparing the body for burial. It seems. Oh, snap. Now listen to this. This is good. Mm. I, I love this. <laughs> it seems like he shows up in the servant heart. The servant heart is where Jesus is found. And in that statement, I think we even get beyond gender distinctions. Oh yeah. To say Jesus is there in the servant, the one who's willing to take care of him, because he said if you do it to the least of these, you do it to me. Mm-hmm. Right? Well he painted that picture for all of us. He was the ultimate 
picture of that mm-hmm. for all of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Died. And then there's the little way, which is an unending <coughs> French. The what? The little way. Truth. Um, yes. An uneducated yeah. French girl. Right. Um, uh, she's had and was declared a doctor of the church along with Thomas Aquinas and Augustine and all the big guys. And it's Kissing the Lepers is the book I was trying to remember last night when we were talking to you from Brad that just went on Audible. And it just gets into a lot of that. Uh, You have Mother Teresa. Mm -hmm. I I don't... I think women have had a huge, if not an equal, impact in the church. Um, I hate to do stereotypes because I, I believe that, you know, men and women... There are very compassionate men. There are very heady, you, you know what I mean by that, yeah. women. I mean, it's it's not a stereotype that, or I mean, it is a stereotype that, well, women are the carers and men are the, whatever, you know. Um, but, as you say, I mean, you, you hear more about the caring side and, mm-hmm. you know, nurses being women, although, you know, there are men nurses too. Um, it's, it's just good to have that balance where it's it's so much of Christianity seems to be in the head you know it's what you know it's how articulate you are it's what you believe it's 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 all in the head and even though we're told to go out and minister to others and be servants we try to do that but then it's like you're constricted by what you know and who's in charge and who's leading and who's you know and you get all into that. So the thing about maybe bringing this up to a little more individualized is, you know, I can serve however. I, you know, whatever comes on my path that day, if I'm in line at the grocery store, you know, I'm not constricted by, well, my Bible says such and such, you know. I'm, I can feel compassion for the person who's in line with three children. And kind of to maybe talk to them and smile and, you know, give the mom a chance to get her groceries up on the belt, you know, without having to, mm, um, and just be more swayed by just what's going on in your life. That's the being in the moment thing, you know. You, you, don't, you don't need a reason to help somebody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can just help somebody. And it's not just in your head. It's, it's actually being... Just who you are in the moment, and right. dealing with what whoever comes along, and it's, showing if I, love. <clears throat> if I if I may, this seems to be a huge, huge lack. I, I I hear it mentioned only briefly here and there in the Protestant Church, but it's a huge lack in the Protestant Church and the contemplative traditions of the the Catholic the the the, the, the mystics that have followed this through centuries. Um, we we don't have this in the in the Protestant Church, uh, not not in an effective way. No, it's, it's too scary. It's it, yeah, scary. I think in the Protestant Church, when it is approached, it's too systematized. It's like okay, well, let's take the we'll take the Catholic contemplative experience and we'll turn it into the Protestant style version of that. And it, by numbers. It, by right. And it gets, it gets a, you know, you write a book about it, and here's a process of it, and it works like this, and that's what you should end up with at the end of it. And the people who engage that and, and find failure in that, they go, well, I, something's wrong with me because I didn't experience that. Right, right. Um, I think to just 
embrace the the contemplative experience as is in its origins in, in the way it is <coughs> um, Richard Rohr is huge for this kind of thing and um, and I, I you, you guys had asked about suggestions for podcasts at one point I'm gonna throw this out there again because I harp on it all the time but I, I would love for you guys to do your own investigation of the Enneagram and at some point down the road I don't know when come up with a, a podcast talking about that because I think as it, as it applies to each person recognizing one another in the moment the various types of people we have the various personalities and temperaments that we all have that kind of thing comes back into this contemplative experience. Um, so, yeah. I second that, by the way, just in case we're a democracy. <laughs> Man, that was a great time, Ray, wasn't it? Oh, my gosh. I tell you, there are so many nuggets in what Derek was saying. I mean, just about the trajectory reading of Scripture yeah. and not really being a slave to it, but letting it really... Right inform our understanding and our walk with Jesus instead of dictating mm -hmm. it. Just awesome, awesome yep. stuff. Yeah, and I'll, I'll tell you the thing that really jumped out to me the most and that I've been kind of meditating on ever since that discussion was uh, that whole thing near the opening of his time where he said that there, there are, oh, I'm going to butcher this, but basically there are times when we go against our own conscience and are against mm -hmm. our own sense of peace in our heart to sort of punt to what we think the Bible is saying. And mm -hmm. I, that just really resonates with where I'm at in my journey right now. And I'd love to encourage our listeners to, to really think about that hard and to, to examine ways in which we have historically, even over uh, a long history of Christianity, have punted to things that we knew deep down inside didn't feel right. Yeah, and yet, yeah. you know, I like I, I've often talked about how in my college years in Bible college, you know, I would just punt to my professors. I would say, well, they obviously know better because they've studied, even though it just didn't sit with me, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think we, we have to challenge that. So I'm, I'm really, really excited about thinking more about this trajectory idea and also just not going against our own conscience and the spirit within us. Absolutely. And, and let me encourage our listeners. You have. I'm telling you, I, I know I recommend a lot of books on the podcast, Steve, but I really, <laughs> yeah. when I say this, I mean this with all sincerity. This is the best book on scripture I have probably ever read. It mm, is Derek, awesome. Derek's new book. It's coming out in December. It's called Disarming Scripture. Wait disarming scripture. So friends, mm -hmm. uh, I know we're hopefully going to get this posted before, <laughs> before the release <laughs> yeah, <right>. date, <laughs> but it might be closer to the release date than we had anticipated. So yeah, um, considering that we're now in mid November, but uh, right. Well, we record this. Yeah. Let me just encourage you check out, we'll put a link on mm -hmm. the podcast to the book, but make sure you check out the book disarming scripture. If you, if you enjoyed the thoughts that Derek shared on this podcast, it is only, elaborated and uh, 
let me let me just say it's it's just a wonderful book. I think you'll really really enjoy cool. it. Disarming Scripture. Derek, thanks so I much for taking the time yes. to join us on the podcast. Thanks to everybody who came out. We had an amazing mm-hmm. amazing time. Uh, we're going to be releasing all the episodes from the group cast to Brad Jerzak, Jim Palmer. I think everybody's just really going to enjoy these episodes, Steve. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Box. We would love to connect with you online, and we have several ways for you to add your voice to the Beyond the Box community. To become a part of our Facebook community, send a Facebook message to either Rayburn Johnson or Steve Sensenig with a request to join. This group is a safe place to talk about your journey and to think through your walk with God. While you're there, you can like our Facebook page to receive updates on new podcasts and happenings at facebook.com slash beyondthebox. You can also visit our website, beyondtheboxpodcast.com, where you can hear all of our previous podcast discussions, submit ideas for future episodes, check out our blog, and even call us to leave your audio comment or idea. Look for the Call Me widget on the right-hand side of the screen where you can enter your name and phone number to have our answering machine call you, or you can call us directly at 626-24-NO-BOX. That's 626-246-6269. However you choose to connect with us, we just hope you do. You are a welcome part of the community that is... Beyond the Box. 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 Beyond the Box.